last class, uh, we have two more classes after this, but last, uh, last uh, class on Tuesday, we got up to the point where Richard Nixon uh, had the articles of impeachment uh, returned against him by the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, it had not gone to the floor yet to have the full articles of impeachment returned against him by the whole House of Representatives, which would be constitutionally required. Uh, but he resigned. He then immediately gave a pardon to Richard Nixon for any crimes that he might have committed uh, while president. Uh, which is quite, a, quite an extraordinary thing when you stop to think about it. Uh, you know, a president coming in and being able to exonerate uh, all the crimes of the previous president, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of going to end up being a, a total prerequisite for a vice presidential position. Uh, uh, so so the, the, bottom, the bottom line is, is that uh, when, when that happened, uh, I mentioned that Bob Strauss, who was the head of the Democratic National Committee uh, in 1976. Uh, the resignation took place in August of 1974. Uh, so Gerald Ford came in uh, for the next two years, basically, uh, leading up to the 1976 November election. And uh, one of the very, and this was now at the height of uh, after the Watergate uh, hearings had all uh, concluded uh, because of the revelations that had been made uh, during, during the course of the uh, Watergate hearings, uh, the Congress convened a new full select committee uh, chaired by Senator Frank Church of Idaho. Uh, and this was the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Abuse. This has come to be known. Uh, they began to inquire into the long history of the Central Intelligence Agency, working its way back from the, the discovery of uh, three former Operation 40 and Operation Mongoose uh, anti-Castro-Cuban refugees uh, in the Watergate Hotel, uh, uh, and then working their way out from there uh, to discover that it was the uh, chief wiretapping specialist for the Central Intelligence Agency, James McCord, who was uh, in, the, in the hotel with him, and E. Howard Hunt and Frank Sturgis, two additional CIA people, uh, also involved directly in the team that burglarized the Democratic National Headquarters. And so that you, you have almost the full nightmare uh, of the warnings that have been given back in 1947 against establishing something like the Central Intelligence Agency that had the authority to engage in covert operations uh, and to, uh, to disenthrone uh, governments uh, around the world that they found to be incompatible. I'm just going to slide this over a little bit, guys. Uh, to disenthrone governments uh, around the world that were uh, un inadequately supportive of uh, U.S. Uh, objectives. And so that, uh, that the warning was that you shouldn't have such an organization because eventually they'll come home to uh, try to overthrow the government here in the United States domestically, uh, if you allow it. It's an, old, it's an old rule that back in Rome, 
uh, any of the, the military generals that were out engaged in foreign imperial conquest, when they came back to Rome, they had to disband their army uh, on, the, on the other side of the Rubicon from Rome. That's where this phrase comes from of crossing the Rubicon. I guess we've crossed the Rubicon here. That would mean that if a general brought his military forces across the Rubicon, he was intending to uh, overthrow the Senate uh, in Rome. Uh, and so they, they, that's why they were ordered to disband their militaries on the far side of the Rubicon. And the, but that long tradition in Western culture had remained. And so the, the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency in 1947, pursuant to the National Security Act of 1947, was, was uh, an exception to this rule of actually setting up a major political uh, covert operations uh, a group authorized to overthrow governments uh, inside the United States. But one of the, the critical provisions of the National Security Act of 1947 was the prohibition on the CIA engaging in any domestic uh, covert operations. And so when you found in the Watergate Hotel on the night of June 17, 1972, uh, five, six different men who were all Central Intelligence Agency operatives, you know, wiretapping and bugging the offices of one of the two major political parties in the United States, the, uh, the Senate felt compelled to uh, impanel a special select committee to investigate the possible uh, series of abuses engaged in by the Central Intelligence Agency. And so that, that whole operation between the resignation of, of Nixon in August of 1974 up to the election of November of 1976, uh, that, that church committee had come into session and was issuing subpoenas and investigating uh, uh, people and they, they had a special focus on this issue of assassinations. And uh, you, uh, other people might wonder why. Uh, what, what was it about the Watergate burglary that caused the United States Senate to be conscious of the potential assassination activities of the Central Intelligence Agency? Well, the answer was is because three, four, or more of the CIA people that were in the Watergate Hotel were part of an assassination program. Of the very program that Lyndon Johnson had asked uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren to be sure to conceal during the, uh, the Warren Commission investigation of the assassination of President Kennedy. So that, well, that uh, major operation was going on of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Abuse, subpoenaing witnesses and documents and, and records and history. Uh, and so Gerald Ford, uh, in the face of that, as the new president, uh, he ended up selecting a new person. Dick Helms, whom you remember, Richard Nixon, told uh, Bob Haldeman to go get John Ehrlichman and go over to the Central Intelligence Agency and see Dick Helms, who was the head of the CIA, and Vernon Walters, who was the deputy, uh, and tell them to contact the FBI and get the hell out of that part of the investigation of the check inside Bernard Barker's pocket. And so, so uh, the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, Dick Helms, ended up being relieved of command by Ford, uh, mainly because he was caught uh, lying to the United States Senate. And so he removed him. And interestingly enough, uh, appointed to take his place, George Herbert 
Walker Bush, uh, who was the, the grandson of George Herbert Walker, the, the CEO of Brown Brothers Harriman, and the son of Prescott Bush, who became the CEO for Brown Brothers Harriman uh, after George Herbert Walker left uh, in 1934 to go set up the Union Bank of New York, which ended up financing the rise of the fascists in Germany. And so here we have George H.W. Bush, who, and, and you say to yourself, what were the qualifications of George H.W. Bush to be the director of the Central Intelligence Agency? Uh, like out of the blue, uh, they picked this person uh, who, in fact, ostensibly had no connections whatsoever with the intelligence community. And uh, so he ends up uh, be, being selected. And one of the very first things that he did was uh, handpick as the head of covert operations for the Central Intelligence Agency, Theodore G. Jackley, the fellow that I had uh, just mentioned uh, at the end of the discussions we were having last week. But what, what, what I want to do is I want to uh, focus on uh, this particular period of history uh, for, for a little bit here today, where George Herbert Walker Bush has been made the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. He is uh, nominated for the position uh, on November 3rd of 1975. And uh, a little more than a month later, it turns out that the first public appearance he made after being nominated to be the new director of the Central Intelligence Agency was at the funeral of a man by the name of Richard Welch. And Richard Welch uh, had been the director, uh, the, uh, the uh, station chief for the Central Intelligence Agency in Athens, Greece. And uh, he had been shot and killed uh, on the night of December 23rd of 1975, basically uh, a month and a little more after Bush became the director of the CIA. Uh, and there was this whole lamenting of, oh, poor Richard Welch, you know, just an innocent CIA station chief uh, in Athens. You know, what, why would anybody want to kill a poor station chief uh, of the agency in Athens? Uh, and uh, they, they used this funeral uh, to generate a, a whole lot of sympathy for the Central Intelligence Agency, which was basically under siege by the United States Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Abuse, and they, they uh, flogged this funeral for all that it was worth, uh, and, uh, and then didn't announce publicly, of course, that at the same time, Bush was, as soon as he was, uh, his nomination was approved, in January of 1976, one of the first acts he did was to secretly appoint uh, Theodore Shackley to be the director of covert operations. So, so the question we have is, what does all that mean? Uh, what is it that's going on there that relates to this course? Uh, one of the first principles, obviously, uh, would be that George H.W. Bush was, as I point out, the grandson of George Herbert Walker. Uh, and the son of Prescott Bush, uh, who were uh, the, the, uh, the, the both uh, CEOs of Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, for whom the legal counsel was Alan Dulles, 
who was the head of the Central Intelligence Agency uh, during a, a lot of the activities that were being investigated. So that you have this peculiar set of facts going on right in front of your eyes uh, as the American public, but nobody could understand what all of that meant. One of the important things to, to know is that uh, Richard Welch had been killed over in Athens, uh, not because he was the CIA station chief in Athens, uh, but because he was the head of the assassination program uh, of the Central Intelligence Agency operating in the Middle East. And uh, he was operating under the authority, interestingly enough, of Theodore Shackley, who had set up the assassination team. And Felix Rodriguez, who was a, uh, a close associate of Theodore Shackley's from the Miami station uh, up until 1965, uh, Felix Rodriguez was assigned to work under Richard Welch by Theodore Shackley to help train the political assassins in the, the Lebanese village. Uh, and uh, that's, that's the activity that was going on. And so Theodore Shackley was then uh, elevated uh, from being the director of Western Hemisphere operations. He, uh, after having set up the military overthrow of Allende uh, down in Chile, having uh, facilitated the rise of the fascist uh, colonels in Argentina, in overthrowing the government there in 1976, that that entire period of time, what you saw, and, and this is something that you would never know again, uh, but for taking this part, what we were experiencing at that point was a huge final surge, uh, we were hoping it was final at least, a final surge on the part of Theodore Shackley as he ascended to be the head of covert operations under George H.W. Bush that we saw a, a, a surge to, into an ascendancy of the power of the Central Intelligence Agency right when it was being confronted by the Senate in their select committee hearings. And so that they were actually instigating major military uh, fascist uprisings uh, in, in Central and Latin America. That they were rising to positions of power in Argentina, in Chile with uh, er, 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 Ernesto Pinochet, uh, the fascist dictator coming to power in Chile, uh, the, uh, the fascist uh, colonels coming to power in Argentina, the rise of positions of power, people like Roberto Dubasan and others in, uh, in El Salvador, uh, the same thing in, in Guatemala, uh, in Honduras, uh, uh, in, uh, and in uh, Uruguay, in Paraguay, and Bolivia. I mean, th there was this huge surge under Theodore Shackley when he was the director of Western Hemisphere Affairs from 1973 to 1975, there was a huge surge uh, into the ascendancy on the part of the fascists that had been in residence down in those countries ever since the end of World War II, from 1945. So that you basically had a delay of some 30 years that they had been uh, festering there in those countries. And, uh, and Theodore Shackley, uh, viewed it as necessary to mount a major fascist uh, insurgency because he, it was his opinion that uh, the entire mission, the fascist mission of the Central Intelligence Agency that had been going on since 1947 was in jeopardy 
because uh, Richard Nixon was trying to figure out how to bring to an end the Vietnam War. And, uh, and uh, uh, Gerald Ford, when he came into power, he was trying to figure out how to bring an end to the Vietnam War, uh, which wasn't too hard to figure out since the American troops were hanging on the bottom of helicopter wheels and being airlifted off the top of the embassy and stuff in Saigon. Uh, and they were pushing helicopters off the decks of, uh, of uh, aircraft carriers to try to take on more uh, American troops to get them on board, they were being driven out of uh, Vietnam. So it didn't take a lot of brain work on the part of Gerald Ford as to how to figure out how to get out of there. Uh, and, and so the, the, this, whole, this whole process was going on all right at this time. And Theodore Shackley, after he kind of uh, facilitated and instigated this rise of the fascists in Central and South America, he was then transferred back to Southeast Asia. And this was the whole alleged, quote, closing down of the American uh, mission in Southeast Asia. What Theodore Shackley did as the director of Southeast Asian Affairs uh, from, from that period, before he was appointed to be the head of covert operations of the CIA, what he, he spent his time stealing major military equipment. Uh, I think I'm going to mention this to you. Uh, I can't tell because I did a big radio interview about this last Friday, and I can't tell whether I told you guys or the radio. But the, the bottom line is, he was stealing thousands and thousands of uh, tons of U.S. military equipment and, uh, and squirreling it away in these big air uh, hangars in um, Udon Air Base in Thailand, in uh, saying that falsely, reporting that it was lost to the communists that in the fleeing of the American troops uh, out of uh, Vietnam, they had left behind all of this military equipment uh, and that the Viet Cong had captured it, which was all a lie. Theodore Shackley had his people commandeering it and bringing it to the Udoran Air Base and, and concealing it uh, in, in these, in these uh, airplane, in these airplane hangars. Uh, and what he was doing is he, Theodore Shackley, viewed himself, the Central Intelligence Agency, the covert operations people, uh, and the entire fascist cabal being betrayed by Richard Nixon uh, and by George uh, or Gerald Ford, that they were basically abandoning them uh, in the face of the rise to power of the baby boom generation uh, in the United States, coming into voting age more and more and more and more uh, of us, uh, and therefore uh, Shackley viewed these political leaders as spineless cowards. And so he, in addition to stealing and commandeering all of this massive amounts of military equipment and munitions and C4 explosives uh, and M16s and ammunition and landmines and all these things that he was stealing, he began to set up a private, off-the-shelf, Standalone, self-financing, covert operations enterprise. That was that part of the funding for which was coming from the skim of profits off the opium trafficking, which he had previously set up with Bank Pao uh, in Laos, and that they set up an entire bank over in Australia called the Nubian Hand Bank, uh, and Richard Secord. And a fellow by the name of Carl Jenkins used to bring 
full suitcases of cash and fly over to Australia, uh, be flown over to Australia on military transport and deposit this cash in the New Hand Bank. Uh, and the, that whole, that, so that whole, quote, closing down of the U.S. operations in Southeast Asia was really, in fact, under the hegemony of Theodore Shackley, really converting all of that into a, an un unaccountable self-financing covert operations enterprise so they could continue to carry out the same fascist agenda that they had been carrying out uh, throughout Southeast Asia and throughout uh, Latin America, uh, even if the people that the two political parties were putting into the presidency were cowards and didn't dare to continue to pursue uh, these policies. So, so uh, that's what was going on. That, uh, George Bush was the head of the Central Intelligence Agency. Theodore Shackley was his ADDO, the Associate Deputy Director for Operations. Uh, and that was the condition that was going on from, uh, 19, uh, from 1974 to 1976 when Gerald Ford ran for uh, election to rather than just be appointed to fill out the last two years of uh, Richard Nixon's uh, term. Uh, he ran for his own uh, presidential term in November of 1976, and the Democrats, uh, realizing that the office of the presidency itself had been seriously wounded uh, by the display of, uh, of craven uh, criminality uh, on the part of uh, Richard Nixon, of sending burglars into the psychiatrist's office of Daniel Ellsberg, you know, uh, having people beaten up, talking about setting fires uh, in the Brookings Institution, you know, uh, burglarizing the Democratic National Party headquarters, you know, uh, condoning uh, political assassinations all through uh, uh, the, the Far East uh, under the Phoenix program that all began coming out in the Senate Select Committee hearings. Uh, and so the, the Democratic uh, leadership under Bob Strauss decided that they better get some person who was uh, a, a genuinely uh, caring, compassionate, honest person, which usually are all disqualifications for being president. Uh, and so that they decided that they were going to get somebody to do this, and he handpicked uh, Jimmy Carter, the former governor of Georgia, Democratic governor of Georgia, and actually sent Jimmy Carter around with all of the checks from the Democratic National Committee to pay off all of the old campaign debts of all of the Democratic Party machines in all of the major cities all around the United States. Uh, therefore, giving the signal to everybody that here's Jimmy Carter, this is the guy who's being blessed by the Democratic National Committee to be the new president. Here, get a chance to meet him. He's giving you the money that you that you uh, owe for the previous uh, campaign debts. And they spent the entire uh, period of 1975 doing that to introduce Jimmy Carter to them because otherwise, who in the world would have known who Jimmy Carter was? You know, I mean, what? You know, the, the governor of Georgia. I mean, nobody knew anything about him. A peanut farmer from Georgia. And so the, 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 they ran him for the, the presidency. And because of the deep unpopularity uh, of Gerald Ford, uh, because of not only his pardoning Richard Nixon, which would have been sufficient unto itself to keep him from being elected, 
but also the ineptness by means of which he kind of uh, closed down the whole operations in Southeast Asia. That, uh, for, for example, he, after, he, after he gave the pardon to Richard Nixon, this big brouhaha broke out, you know, he said, oh, well, look, here's what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to hold out the offer of amnesty for all of the American men, young American men who refused to respond to the draft all during the Vietnam War. Uh, that I'm going to issue a big uh, program whereby all you have to do is come in, uh, come back from Canada, come back from wherever you were, uh, and come forward and, uh, and admit that you were wrong in, uh, in not serving your country, apologize for what you did, and you're, you will be uh, exonerated. You know, thousands and thousands of guys who refused to go, right? And uh, so a whole year went by uh, from 1975, uh, well, actually, 1974 to, to early to the end of 1975, and not a single solitary person came forward. And so they got, they got to the end of 1975, and he was getting set to have to begin his presidential campaign in 1976, so he thought he needed to have somebody at least come in. And so uh, I was approached by a young, a young fellow by the name of Brian Barger, who was the president of the University of Maryland student body. And uh, I drafted up a letter for Brian, and we sent it to the guy in the White House, who was the head of this program for Gerald Ford. Uh, and uh, Brian said uh, who he was and how he had refused the, the draft notice. And uh, he wanted to come in and talk about this with the head of the program. Uh, and then he put a little, I actually put in the letter, this little addendum. And he had a number of other friends who might want to come in and talk with him too. So at the appointed time and day, we all went over to the White House. And there was Brian Barger, myself, Father Daniel Berrigan, uh, uh, Father Phil Berrigan, uh, Liz McAllister, uh, Dr. Benjamin Spock, uh, David Abernathy of the Southern Christian Leadership uh, Conference, the uh, heads of the uh, Gold Star Mothers, who are mothers who have received the Medal of Honor for their sons posthumously. And we all, and we went over uh, at the time of the appointment, and we all got in the tourist line. And we got the tourist line, and we came to the tourist line, and we came into the White House, and we were walking along and being shown, you know, that here's the green room, and here's the blue room, and blah. And all of a sudden, all the Secret Service guys that were running around inside the White House started recognizing faces uh, of who these people were, because they were all major anti-Vietnam War activists. And so they started talking up their sleeve and their, their little microphones and holding on to their little earpieces and, and looking astonished. And finally, they surrounded all of us. Uh, they had about maybe 20 of them surrounded all of us. And then issued this announcement that the White House was being closed uh, early uh, and ordering everybody out. And so everybody else was all kind of confused and they all left the White House. And we continued to stay there. And so the uh, head of the Secret Service came over with this little blowhorn or bullhorn uh, with video cameras and said, you are now being formally instructed that the White House is closed uh, and that uh, if you refuse to leave, uh, you're going to be charged with failure to quit, uh, which turns out, uh, much to their misfortune, uh, or misfortune to be a specific technical term 
or if you've entered the premises with permission, but you're being told to leave and you don't leave, you're technically charged with failure to quit the property. And so as soon as they announced that if they didn't leave, they were going to be charged with failure to quit, people started going, failure to quit, failure to quit, great, failure to quit, failure to quit. And so they arrested them. And they all pulled, they pulled out bed sheets from under their clothes, you know, great big, great big signs like, you know, Nixon war and does the fact that we've killed 10,000 people make us great and other signs of that kind. And so the, 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 uh, the security people were all going bananas. And so they got more cameras there to come out to video this because they knew this was going to be a trial now. And so they come out and they said, okay, we're going to warn you three times that you have to leave or you're going to be charged with failure to quit. Failure to quit, failure to quit. <laughs> so, so they all sit down on the floor and they're all taking pictures of them and stuff and they start arresting everybody. And so I stand up and tell them you know, who I am uh, and show them the letter that we're here by invitation, that we've been invited to come. This is Brian Barger, my name is Daniel Sheen, I'm his lawyer. You know, that we've all been, uh, you know, we were coming in to do the appointment when suddenly you just closed the White House on us. And, uh, and so that, that didn't stop them. They went right ahead and arrested everybody. And then, so we demanded an immediate trial. Uh, and they bring on, they were going to bring us on for a preliminary hearing. Uh, we said, no, 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 we'll waive the preliminary hearing. Let's go directly to trial. We want a jury trial immediately. So we had this great jury trial where we impaneled a jury. And, uh, and I ended up starting to put on all the witnesses, one after another. And, uh, the, the, one of the, the Gold Star mothers gets on the stand and testifies that the reason she was coming to the White House is because she wanted, she read the last letter from her son before he had been killed in Vietnam. And he was talking about how ashamed he was, you know, of being an American and what they were doing there. Uh, and she reads the letter to the jury and said that she was coming to try to meet the head of this program who was trying to make other honorable young men apologize for not having gone and done what her son regretted ever having done. Everybody in the whole place started to cry. Uh, and then uh, Father Daniel Berrigan gets on the stand and testifies that he was coming because he wanted to talk to the head of this program because he had gotten the reports that the United States was dropping butterfly bombs uh, in North Vietnam. Uh, that there were these huge metal canisters uh, with big wings on them like, and they were all painted like butterflies. Uh, and they were designed to fall and hit the ground, and it would trigger a, a release on them so that whoever touched them, that they would explode in their face. And they were designed to attract children so that it would blow off their hands and arms and, and their, their face, but it wouldn't kill them so that their families would have to attend to them for the whole rest of their lives and, and destroy their will to fight. Uh, and he said that when, when he had gotten the reports about us doing this, he found it hard to believe. And so therefore, he had come to talk to President Ford to get President Ford to tell him whether or not that was true. Well, you can imagine the response that I had with the jury. <laughs> so everybody started crying like mad. Uh, and it took the jury about 22 minutes to acquit everybody. Uh, and that was turned out to be the last anti-Vietnam War demonstration uh, at the White House that we did. Uh, and so this is the kind of thing that was going on at that time uh, in uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, and 
in response to the, uh, the activities that were going on in Latin America, the surge of the fascists kind of attempting to assert power and take control of all of those governments, uh, the, the, the DINA, the secret political police in Chile under Ernesto Pinochet, uh, had, had actually assassinated, they assassinated the ambassador to the United States from the Allende government, the democratically elected socialist government in Chile was assassinated, you know, like three blocks from my office. Now, I was actually in the car driving away from the office, getting set to go over to a meeting at the National Council of Churches, uh, and I heard this huge explosion. And uh, I thought it was like some kind of a construction site or something where something must have blown up or something. And I heard it go off, and I drove down Mass Ave and went on over to Capitol Hill to the National Council of Churches. We were having a meeting there when Joe Eldridge came running in, the uh, a member of the Board of uh, Homeland Ministries of the National Methodist Church came rushing in and said that Orlando Letalier had just been assassinated. The ambassador of the United States, his car had been blown up, driving directly past the Chilean embassy. As it turns out, the, de the people who, who triggered the detonator were inside the embassy. Uh, and, and, uh, so we all left and went up there and held a big demonstration in front of the Chilean embassy uh, and the, the, uh, the uh, protective service, the federal protective service that protects all of the embassies came all surrounding us and telling us that we couldn't be there, that you're not allowed to demonstrate within 500 feet of an embassy. Uh, and so we just moved our whole group of people down the street a couple of blocks to our Jesuit National Headquarters at 1717 Mass Ave. And everybody assembled on our property directly across from the Chilean chancellery uh, and had this huge demonstration. Uh, we had this, this uh, we, everybody was talking about the fact that it was the dean of the secret police under Pinochet. Everybody knew who killed him. Uh, and you know, the FBI are all wringing their hands like this, not knowing what to do. <clears throat> and, and, and then there was a huge funeral we had at St. Matthew's, which was the same Catholic church where they had the funeral for President John Kennedy and for Robert Kennedy. Uh, so we had the big funeral there, and every, all the diplomats of the, of the entire uh, assemblage in Washington, D.C. were all there at his funeral, because it was the first time that a foreign ambassador had ever been assassinated in the United States. So we had this huge mass. Uh, my immediate Jesuit superior, Father Bill Davis, uh, and the uh, godson of our uh, younger uh, son, uh, all they celebrated the, the funeral mass for Orlando Latalier and Joan Baez was there uh, saying uh, Ave Maria uh, at the funeral. It was it was an extraordinary uh, experience. It, it was just it was a complete fusion of uh, of faith and, and spirituality and politics. Uh, it was just it was just devastating uh, to the administration that everybody knew that the dean had done this. Uh, and so Gerald Ford lost the election. But before he lost the election, we ended up uh, convening a meeting with the candidate, uh, uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, we, I, I went to see uh, Stu Eisenstadt, who was his uh, chief policy guy, and sat down with him, explained to him who I was, and I'd worked in Bobby's campaign, and, run the, the uh, primary campaign for McGovern in the 14th Congressional District of New York. It had been active in all these uh, different things. Uh, and so I, as a legal counsel, the Jesuit National Headquarters, Social Ministry Office, 
organized a meeting of the heads of all 54 of the major religious denominations in the United States to meet with Jimmy Carter. And we all took the position that if he were elected president, that we wanted him to agree to uh, revoke the military, U.S. military aid to any foreign dictator who was proven to be engaged in the systematic violation of the human rights of his own citizens. And so after he was elected in the November of 1976, uh, he ended up issuing an executive order uh, cutting off U.S. foreign uh, military aid to Anastasio Somoza of Nicaragua and to the Shah of Iran, uh, both of which governments uh, toppled uh, within a matter of weeks uh, without the U.S. military backup. Uh, and so that, that those were the, the kind of things that were happening uh, right at uh, that time. And uh, Jimmy Carter, when, when he came in, he nominated to become the head of the Central Intelligence Agency, Teddy Sorensen. Teddy Sorensen was one of the very best friends of John Kennedy and uh, was a major speechwriter for President Kennedy. And as soon as he did that, everybody knew that if Teddy Sorensen was made the head of the Central Intelligence Agency, he was going to conduct an internal investigation in the CIA to find out who was involved in killing President Kennedy. And so that they, that whole constabulary freaked out. And when, uh, <laughs> and in the meantime, all kinds of things happened. We did the Pentagon Papers case uh, that, that allowed the New York Times to publish the all 47 volumes of the Pentagon Papers. Uh, we had a huge, massive marches in Washington, D.C. Uh, to, to bring the war to an end. Uh, and what happened is when Teddy Sorensen came before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee uh, to be approved as the head of the CIA, uh, Howard Baker from Tennessee, the Republican senator from Tennessee, sent a note around the table to Teddy Sorensen and, and told him that, that uh, Howard Baker had sitting on his lap a copy of the affidavit that we had gotten Teddy Sorensen to sign for us during the Pentagon Papers litigation. Because one of the positions that uh, Whitney North Seymour, who was the United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York, that uh, was the legal counsel for the Nixon administration in the Pentagon Papers, he took the position in court that uh, you couldn't be allowing the editors of the New York Times to make the decision as to what security, national security information they would release to the public. And, uh, and uh, we countered by pointing out to, to uh, the judge, uh, uh, Judge Marie Gerfine, that in fact the Central Intelligence Agency regularly briefed the editorial staff of the New York Times about covert operations uh, so that their reporters wouldn't step on the feet of one of these covert operations and publicly reveal it. And so that it revealed the kind of hand-in-glove kind of relationship uh, between the government and the CIA and the New York Times. Uh, and so we had that affidavit from Teddy Sorensen because Teddy Sorensen was the point man for the Kennedy administration that used to brief the editors of the New York Times on covert operations. And, uh, and uh, Senator Howard Baker was going to pull this out uh, as his very first confrontation with Sorensen about how he couldn't be trusted to be the head of the Central Intelligence Agency because he had breached uh, national security oaths that he had by revealing to the editors of the New York Times 
classified uh, covert operations. Uh, and so uh, Teddy Sorensen just got up and left the table and never, never uh, gave his, his initial statement, never gave his, uh, never answered any questions, and uh, just withdrew, uh, withdrew his name as the head of the Central Intelligence Agency. And so Jimmy Carter ends up appointing Stansfield Turner. And uh, in that first period between January 21st of 1977 uh, and uh, October 25th of 1977, that Halloween, that uh, Stansfield Turner on the 25th of October issued a, an order uh, forcing into early retirement 842 members of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, who had been involved in illegal covert operations or sustaining them. Uh, and it's called the, Holly, the Halloween Massacre. Uh, it's how it's referred to in Washington, D.C. But what you saw was Jimmy Carter throwing down on these people with the full support of the United States Senate that, was, uh, that had the Senate Select Committee uh, chaired by Senator Frank Church from Idaho uh, publicly revealing the criminal activities of the CIA involving the illegal overthrow of our veins in Guatemala in 1954, the or 53, the overthrow of the uh, of the government uh, uh, in uh, Iran uh, in 1954, the the plan to try to assassinate uh, Lumumba, the plan to try to assassinate Fidel Castro, and when they got into that stuff about the Castro assassination they started making it clear that there was this assassination team that was operating against Castro, the very thing that Lyndon Johnson had gotten Earl Warren to go to great lengths to conceal during the, the Warren Commission investigation. And so when that piece of information came out, uh, that instigated the establishment of the uh, House Select Committee on Assassination to have a complete reinvestigation of the assassination of President Kennedy. So you see that, that uh, by 1976 to 77, we had come all the way from uh, November of 1963 up to, the, uh, up to 1977. In, the, in that period of 14 years, there was this extraordinary turmoil that was going on inside the United States that had led the governing powers in the United States realized that they had to have a reinvestigation of the assassination of President Kennedy, which in a certain sense started this entire period. And so that uh, the, the people that lived through the so-called 60s uh, all know that the 60s didn't happen between 1960 and 1970. The 60s happened between 1963 uh, and 1977. That's, that's the period of the so-called 60s with the insurrection uh, against the fascist uh, elements inside the American government, uh, against their imperial foreign policy, uh, against the, uh, the reactionaries uh, inside the Central Intelligence Agency. And so all of, all of this activity was going on at that time, but the, the important thing is, is that uh, Theodore Shackley was still ensconced as the head of covert operations inside the CIA. And so what I want to do is I want to briefly turn attention to this guy because it's important for you to, to, in order to try to track what that period of history looked like, to just follow the career of just this one guy. And you'll see what he was up to. That Theodore Shackley, as I told you, that uh, 
uh, was a young man in the United States, uh, had parents from Poland uh, that, uh, that had, had come to the United States. Uh, he was a, a fluent German and Polish speaker. So he, he uh, after Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, he enrolled in the United States Army and was put into the 101st Counterintelligence Corps. And he was in Germany in 1945, in May of 1945, when the Germans surrendered uh, to the American allies. And Reinhard Galen, whom I mentioned to you, uh, who was the head of the anti-Soviet and anti-Eastern Bloc intelligence for the Third Reich, had, had fled earlier up into the mountains of Bavaria uh, with the microfilm of all of their documents and files on who their spies were their fascist spies all through uh, Eastern Europe and Russia. And when the war, when the, uh, the, the treaty was signed, the surrender was signed, he came forward uh, and turned himself in to the 101st Counterintelligence Corps. And young Theodore Shackley was assigned to be his German-American translator. And uh, he realized very soon, Theodore Shackley, that this guy Galen was a super influential person and so Theodore Shackley became his uh, liaison, basically, uh, a German-American speaker who translated all of the demands that Galen was making uh, to the 101st Counterintelligence Corps. And, uh, and they brought in the, the, uh, the OSS. The OSS was still in existence at that time. Uh, and they brought them in, and the people from military intelligence and the OSS, just before it was disbanded, uh, came in. Uh, and debriefed him, uh, and then they, they brought him to Fort Hunt outside of Washington, D.C., and they spent almost three weeks carrying on this protracted uh, negotiation uh, with Reinhard Galen, uh, pursuant to which he was demanding that he and some 100 uh, officers that were part of his uh, anti-Soviet, anti-communist uh, intelligence operation for the Third Reich, have their names taken off the Nuremberg War Crimes Tribunal list, uh, and that they be made the head of the new West Germany's intelligence, and that they would serve as the major source of intelligence for the Western allies at the end of the war for the activities of the Soviet Union and the other communists are in the Eastern Bloc. Uh, and so it was Shackley that was in the middle of those translations and those negotiations and when the United States agreed to the demands of Galen and got him appointed to be the head of the, uh, the number two guy to start with in the uh, West German intelligence, uh, Theodore Shackley was assigned to be his deputy. And so Shackley remained there with him uh, from, the, from 1945 uh, until, uh, up until 1947 when Shackley came back to the United States and was in the entering class of the Central Intelligence Agency that was created by the National Security Act of 1947, pursuant to those recommendations that had been generated by Robert Lovett and his commission. Uh, so, that, so, so Shackley becomes the, the premier entering class of the Central Intelligence Agency, and then is assigned to go back to Berlin to continue being the deputy to Reinhard Galen, who was the chief uh, intelligence source for the entire Western allies against the Soviet Union and was, was pro promulgating massive lies telling the Western allies that the Soviets were preparing to invade Europe 
and, 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 and put them under the domination of the Soviets, the, the Soviet Union was tearing up the rails, the metal rails of the Soviet uh, uh, railways into Europe and bringing them back into Russia because they were so devastated, they had lost 20 million people had been killed uh, in World War II in Russia. Uh, their economy was devastated. Uh, they were trying to get back, struggling to get back on their feet. And here's Reinhard Galen with Shackle right at his side, you know, lying to the Western Allies, telling them that the Soviets were getting set to try to invade Europe and, and therefore uh, helping to whip up this rabid anti-communist, anti-Soviet uh, mentality on the part of everyone in the immediate aftermath of the war. But the reality of it is, is that that type of attitude was being displayed by the American Central American OSS and the American military intelligence and the American political officials uh, before the war was even over. You know, so they, they, they were already engaged in trying to shift over their entire uh, antipathy toward Germany and the Nazis and fascists to transfer over all that antipathy toward the Soviet Union, uh, which was the same antipathy that had been demonstrated toward them back in 1917 uh, under the Secretary of State, uh, Robert Lansing, who you remember was the son-in-law of uh, John W. Foster, who was the grandfather of Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles. That this, this is the, the, the mentality so that that, that whole proto-fascist, uh, quote, anti-communist kind of mentality then motivated them to not only recruit all of the rocket scientists that they could from Germany and bring them into the United States, but also, very importantly, more importantly, I think, uh, to actually, uh, actually recruit virtually all of the anti-Soviet intelligence and covert operations people from the Third Reich under a separate program called Operation Overcast and bring them into the United States or to give them false names, false passports. Uh, this is over and above their participation in helping to smuggle the top command staff of the SS and the, uh, the remaining uh, officials of the Nazi party out of Europe down into Brazil and Argentina and Uruguay and Paraguay etc. Uh, in, the, in the year immediately uh, preceding the end of World War II. So this is the, what we saw happening here uh, in, in this period, uh, especially between 1963 and 1977, there's this whole decade, uh, decade and a half, of uh, a basic uh, rising up inside the United States of a very progressive uh, and very aggressive uh, anti-fascist uh, movement inside the United States on the part of the boomer generation. Uh, at the same time, there was this huge insurgency in Latin America of the right-wing fascists rising into the ascendancy. Uh, and so there was this clash that took place uh, between them. And what happened is when uh, Jimmy Carter was in office, uh, what happened when it came time for him to run for re-election, what happened is that the, uh, the Theodore Shackley was, had then left the Central Intelligence Agency and had joined the campaign staff of George Herbert Walker Bush, who was running as the vice presidential candidate. He was running as a presidential candidate to begin with. 
but then was the vice president to Ronald Reagan. And so that, that entire campaign was run by uh, William Casey, who was an old CIA hand, uh, along with Theodore Shackley. And what Theodore Shackley did is he organized a major covert operation to be an integral part of the 1980 presidential campaign of, uh, of Ronald Reagan and, uh, and George H.W. Bush. And what they did is they generated a set of meetings with the Hezbollah, uh, first over in, uh, in uh, Paris, and then a second meeting in Madrid in Spain, the home of Otto Scorzani, uh, who ran the anti-communist special warfare training academy for Galen, that they had a set of meetings uh, with the Hezbollah and got the Hezbollah to agree to hold uh, the hostages that had been seized in the American embassy by uh, a group of people that were upset over the fact that the, uh, well, the Shah of Iran had collapsed and a new government had come in that was an Islamic government. And uh, they were hostile to the United States, uh, who had been supportive of the Shah of Iran uh, and the Sabak, the secret political police of the, of the Shah, that had tortured and disappeared people. And it was the reason why Jimmy Carter had provoked the U.S. military aid to, uh, to Iran. And so the, the bottom line is that part of that covert operation, one of the more well-known aspects of that, is the so-called October Surprise of, them, uh, of, of uh, William Casey uh, meeting with the people, representatives of the Hezbollah, and agreeing that if they would hold the American hostages and not release them, to, in response to the, to the negotiation positions being put forth by President Carter uh, to, so that President Carter would look inept and ineffectual uh, and it could help Reagan and Bush win the campaign. Uh, that was one part of it, but another very important part that no one will tell you about uh, is that Theodore Shackley had millions of dollars uh, transferred from the Nugenhan Bank in Australia, which is drug money from Vang Pao uh, in the opium trafficking in Southeast Asia, uh, had the millions of dollars transferred through two banks in South Africa, the Afrikaner government, into the United States, and they poured millions of dollars into oppositional campaigning against Frank Church, who was the head of the Church Committee, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Abuse, that had issued this scathing report against the Central Intelligence Agency in their covert operations. Uh, they, they publicly ran all these public ads on television in the state of Idaho against Senator Frank Church saying that he was supportive of the Equal Rights Amendment uh, on behalf of women's equality and that he was a, a supporter of gun control legislation. That's where they put their money in and they ended up knocking off uh, Frank Church. Well, I guess what you'd have to say is they defeated him in his election. You have to be careful using that term, uh, knocking them off for these people. Uh, but they, they ended up uh, getting him defeated politically in Idaho in 1980, and they turned their attention also on, uh, on Birch Bayh in Indiana, who had been a strong supporter of the select committee, uh, and got him defeated. And they put other millions of dollars into Iowa against Senator Dick Clark, uh, who was, had, had opposed 
the, uh, the activities of the Central Intelligence Agency in Africa, including their plan to assassinate Patrice Lumumba. Uh, that, uh, that, and, and they also went after Senator Alan Cranston here in California and after George McGovern in South Dakota. They didn't defeat either of those two guys, but they were successful in defeating uh, President Carter for a second term. They were successful in getting rid of Senator Frank Church, the chairman of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Abuse. They were successful in getting rid of Bert Bai in Indiana, another opponent of the Central Intelligence Agency. They were successful in getting rid of Dick Clark. Uh, all of these senators went down to defeat to the shock of everybody because this mysterious millions of dollars suddenly poured into their states uh, opposing them for election. So what you saw come to full fruition in 1980 was a continuation of what was portended uh, in 1972 when you have six Central Intelligence Agency people found inside the Democratic National Committee wiretapping and bugging the offices of the head of the DNC. And now in 1980, you see, again, led by Theodore Shackley uh, is, is the, as a part of the campaign staff for George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, and the, 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 they mount an effective covert operation inside the United States to remove the president of the United States uh, and to, to put into office uh, Ronald Reagan, who, as you probably well know, now is starting to come up into kind of your lifetimes, uh, was in fact a professional actor. Uh, and he was basically a figurehead uh, in the office of the presidency. And right immediately behind him was George H.W. Bush, uh, the former CIA director, the grandson of George Herbert Walker, the chairman of the board of Brown Brothers Harriman, uh, the, uh, and, and the son of Prescott Bush, who had not only been the, the CEO after George uh, Herbert Walker of the Brown Brothers Harriman, but who had in fact gone and run for the Senate in Connecticut and become the principal liaison inside the United States Congress to the Covert Operations Division of the Central Intelligence Agency. <clears throat> so he was the one, Prescott Bush, uh, the father of George H.W. Bush, was the man inside the United States Congress who briefed the right people inside the Senate and inside the House of Representatives about covert operations that the Central Intelligence Agency was engaging in. So this was, this was a full-scale counter-offensive mounted by the Covert Operations Division, uh, people from the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, that, was, that was a coincident with the surge in the positions of power in Latin America of the fascists that had been transferred from Germany at the end of the whole, at the end of World War II, uh, so that you saw in 1980 a huge fascist uh, surge into positions of power, and so that we then had to live with from 1980 uh, all the way to 1992 uh, the administration of Reagan and Bush which was in fact run by George H. W. Bush, and, and not really by Ronald Reagan at all. In, the, in his capacity as vice president, George H. W. Bush chaired the 5412 committee, which ran the covert operations of the Central Intelligence Agency. William Casey 
was made the head of the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, uh, who also happened to be the chairman of the board of Cap City, which owned ABC Television. Uh, and, uh, and they then began to mount a major operation uh, to reinstate the fascists who had been ousted from control in Nicaragua, Anastasio Somoza, and the Shah of Iran. Not necessarily the same two people, but the, the powers that they represented, that fascist element that they represented. And they were carrying on this covert war through the off-the-shelf enterprise that had been created by Theodore Shafley. When in those last years, between 1975, late 74, and early 76, before he was appointed to be the, the uh, director of covert operations for the agency, as the uh, Far East Asian uh, chief of operations for the CIA, he was basically setting up this covert off-the-shelf enterprise so that they could have that whole enterprise conduct the, the covert policies so that they could keep them concealed, theoretically, from the United States Senate and the Democrats who were trying to stop them from doing what they were doing. Okay? So that this is, this is actually what was happening uh, in the United States uh, throughout this, this, whole, this whole period. Uh, and and I, I fortunately became quite uh, deeply involved in all this. Not only had I been the uh, legal counsel in Ethel Bailey's office during Watergate uh, burglary, so I knew about exactly what was going on in there, I ended up becoming the legal counsel of the Jesuit National Headquarters. And in that capacity, we initiated the major federal racketeering uh, civil case against the off-the-shelf enterprise. That we basically sued them in federal court, uh, charging them with a whole series of uh, federal criminal offenses, which turned out to be what they call predicate acts for an ongoing federal criminal racketeer-influenced and corrupt organization. Uh, so that's the RICO uh, statute against them. So we undertook to, to prosecute these people, and it was in that context, uh, from the beginning of that investigation, uh, in 1984, uh, up until the filing of our complaint against them, which is two days from now, the 30th anniversary. We filed that major federal civil complaint against them on May 28th, of 1986. Okay, so the 30th anniversary of all of this is coming up. You know, so that so you're you're here uh, now. What I'm going to do in the next 10 minutes or so, I'm going to in light of the 30th anniversary of the Iran Contra uh, scandal, I'm going to tell you uh, what it was all about. Uh, because we're having some difficulty getting any of the major networks or even cable stations to do a major documentary about the Iran-Contra scandal uh, here 30 years afterward. Because the special prosecutor, Lawrence Walsh, who we ended up successfully getting appointed to investigate that case, said at the conclusion of his investigation that uh, because there was an absolute lack of will on the part of either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, who publicly exposed who these people were and what they were actually doing, 
that we now had to realize that we were going to have to confront these people again uh, in the very near future. But this time, it would not be their activities under the rubric of anti-communism. It would be under the rubric of anti-terrorism. Because Oliver North was the deputy, uh, the, the deputy director of the National Security Council for anti-terrorism. That was where he derived all of his power from, uh, to be able to be held up as the purported head of this enterprise, whereas in fact it was Theodore Shapley, which they kept completely concealed because he was the immediate past director of covert operations for George Bush, you know, under Gerald Ford. And so that, uh, so that I want to just tell you briefly exactly what happened there. Because it, it opens on to, per the quotation from uh, Lawrence Walsh, really laying the groundwork for the anti-terrorism operations that we see going on now. And the, the shutting down of, of civil rights inside the country, the uh, wiretapping telephones without warrants, without probable cause, the, the spying on all of your cell phones and on all of your computer communications, uh, the rounding up of people and holding them without trial, without lawyers, uh, torturing them. And we now have uh, the candidate for one, as of last night, official candidate. Uh, for the Republican Party, saying that he will reinstitute waterboarding uh, in much worse, he said, leaving that somewhat undefined uh, as to what he's talking about. Uh, and that, that we basically have a strident fascist, you know, running for uh, the presidency of the United States, now being the nominee of one of the two major political parties, with all of the rest of the Republican Party now, after having said a whole long series of perfectly truthful things about him and how completely outrageous he is, now saying, you know, on third thought, uh, we're all going to cuddle right up to him and hug him and have him be our nominee so that we can reestablish the solidarity of the Republican Party. And now you see uh, the polls starting to come out uh, everywhere saying that. Uh, that uh, that uh, Trump and Hillary Clinton are all running neck and neck, basically, if not with Hillary a little bit behind. Just all of a sudden, you know, even though you know they're they're talking all about you know at uh, the 80 percent of all the women uh, thinking that uh, that that, uh, that Trump is highly they have highly unfavorable uh, views of Trump. Uh, and uh, other, other uh, uh, constituencies, such as people who read more than two books a year, uh, you know, have the same general attitude about it. Actually, most people who read at all. Yes. to uh, win all of these final, uh, final primary races by substantial margins 
uh, and point out that the poles are all having her either be able to beat Trump by much less than, uh, than Bernie could, or actually losing to Trump. Uh, so it's not, my, my sense of it is that it's a, it's a very bad thing right now uh, to all of a sudden have all of this assertion that, oh, Trump and Hillary are just neck and neck. It's, it's the major news media trying to generate something that appears to be like a horse race. Because uh, who would care? If she was beating him, you know, by by well, 11 points, that uh, all the polls the week before, he was before the, the the leadership of the Republican Party decided to change gears and turn around and start embracing him, uh, and him started to say that well, his his uh, idea about uh, banning all Muslims from the country was just an idea, just a thought that he would kind of toss out there, uh, you know, before he started saying things like that. You know, she was she was beating him by 11 points in all the polls, and Bernie was beating him by 16 points or more, and that was for, that was when Bernie was making the argument that he should be the candidate uh, because he could beat Trump more soundly than she could. Well, that's not a very effective argument as long as she can beat it. Saying she's gotten more popular votes than he's gotten, has more elected delegates than he's gotten. And when you add her superdelegates, in virtually every category, she wins. Uh, but now, now it is, in fact, uh, different in that there are some polls coming out now saying that she would lose to him in a head-to-head -head contest if it were held now. Uh, and, and several others having it be effectively a dead heat, like right now, okay, within three percentage points one way or another. Uh, and so that, that one can argue that it's a, a good thing for Bernie's people because it gives them a little more ammunition. But the, the reality is that once you realize that counting Hillary's superdelegates, they're already publicly committed to her, like 512 of the 712 are committed to her. If you add those delegates in, all she needs is 90 delegates out of the state of California. And California has something like 436 or something. Uh, you know, I mean, he, he could beat her by by basically uh, 75 to 25. If she only got 25 percent of the delegates, she'd get 100 delegates, and then put her over the top. You know, but for but for Bernie being able to talk some of the super delegates out of voting for her, who've already publicly committed to her. You know. And so and that's, that's not likely to happen, you know, unless, unless this challenge is being made, for example, in Kentucky uh, to, the, to the ballots, that there's a challenge to the, uh, the ballot counts in Kentucky, and, uh, and the uh, uh, Bernie Sanders people are asserting that they, in fact, won. Now, in Kentucky, it doesn't really mean that much, because Hillary got 28 delegates and he got 27. You know, so I mean, even if it switches around the other way and uh, he gets 28 and she gets 27, it doesn't make any difference. But uh, I was in a meeting last night and there are people who have done the, the, the studies of this uh, and they have gone through all of the states where all the primaries were held and they've, they've computed what the difference was between the exit polls. That is the interviews of real people coming out of the voting booths 
telling who they voted for. Uh, the discrepancy between that number and the much lower number of votes that were actually tabulated for Bernie, and the much higher number of votes that were tabulated for Hillary. And they've gone through that as of, as of the, the last primary, and that they say that there are over one million votes that were, that were falsely counted for Hillary and taken away from him. So her much vaunted, I've got two million more votes than he, uh, according to those figures, run directly contrary to the exit polls. So that there's a there's that issue. That the this that there was a, there was a major uh, I got I got a, I took a picture of it on my phone except that I don't know how to make it come back. Uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's uh, uh, help. Uh, here uh, Noah, yeah. if you can find it on my camera, I, I guess I can't show you. It's, it, oh, I guess I can put it over there or something. But uh, there's a, uh, in the, where the photographs are, the, the, the one other than the two pictures of my feet, uh, <laughs> I think uh, there's, there's, you'll see a, you'll see a, a chart there. Uh, and so, so the, the bottom line is that there, there is, in fact, an effort underway within Bernie's campaign uh, to review the, the actual ballots. Uh, that have been cast. The challenge is that 80% of them were electronic voting machines. Uh, and so that there's an entire additional, more complex process that needs to go, be gone through, uh, given the limited amount of time that exists right now. So that the, 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 the expansive question that you were asking, really, other than just, you know, isn't that helpful for Hillary if they're reporting her behind? because it's better for Bernie's people because then they can argue that maybe he should be the nominee. That's one aspect of the kind of uh, remaining uh, offensive uh, that is being taken by Bernie's people. Uh, yeah, that's it. Now, how, the, it's, it's, you can do this. See this? I discovered this. You can go like that. Yeah. <laughs> like that. Yeah. Uh, if you can make people see it. Uh, what, what this does is it... Uh, it, uh, you see, I'm super high tech here. Got <laughs> this uh, down to a science uh, that uh, that state after state after state after state after state uh, there are uh, there are no, it's uh, to your left. No, all the way to the left. There there, there are is a, is a transparent discrepancy between the uh, the exit polls of actual people interview coming out of the voting book and the official count that was that was given there but Bernie was projected to get 52% uh, of the or he was said in the poll the exit polls to have gotten 52% of all of the, of the votes cast and it turns out that he gets like 43% uh, in the official count or he was projected to get 48% and he got like 32% are, and, and then they have computed what the probabilities are of there being uh, that big an error in the, the exit polls from the actual votes, and that they are like 0.03% uh, probability, 1% uh, possibility, 2% possibility. 
And, and they were pointing out that the exit polls are used by the United States State Department in foreign elections to determine the legality and legitimacy of the elections in foreign countries, uh, on which they predicate foreign aid and stuff. And that if there's more than a 3% discrepancy, uh, they, they classify it as a manipulated election. And, uh, and he has, uh, you know, virtually in all but four of the primaries, it was more than a 3% discrepancy. Uh, and yet nobody has gone back and checked these ballots yet. Uh, so there is some discussion going on right now uh, about whether or not they're going to demand a, an official recount. Uh, not, of the, not of all of the ballots, but, uh, but just checking them against the exit polls. Okay, so that, that's just in response to your question of like, what all can be done here. Uh, because, the, I mean, if this thing starts to drift into a, uh, a, a direct dogfight between Hillary and, and the Trump, and the media are portraying it as a tight neck-and-neck -neck horse race, you know, people are going to start to think that's true. Well, probably not with Cornell. <laughs> not even Cornell West as I do. Uh, you know, the, it isn't that the substance of their positions wouldn't be consistent with his, but the, there's a certain amount of style and things that I think probably would be more persuasive. Uh, and and I, I don't know that he, his, he's, he's going to be setting forth a a set of nominations for people to be selected to the rules committee and the uh, the platform committee and others, uh, and we'll start seeing who those people are going to be. Uh, and then there's a whole procedural question as to how, what kind of authority he's going to have commensurate with his percentage of the votes that he got in the primaries to pick people to go onto those uh, platform committees. We don't know yet what those rules are going to be. That's going to be determined by the rules committee. Say, so, he was allowed to like take a third of the platform committee. A third now? It was five of the fifteen, including like Bill McKibben from Jersey Valley and Colonel West. He picked like five progressive people. Yeah. But they're only a third overall, and then Boston and Schultz and Clinton picked the rest. So Even though he has forty-six percent of all the votes. Yeah, Boston and Schultz got four, and Clinton got six. So it was. Okay, that's interesting. Okay. Um, do you think that the Bernie Sanders Trump debate can have any influence on the I do. The, the, the real question is whether it's going to have any effect upon some of the superdelegates. That's really what the plan is, is to have that. Uh, and they were trying, they were trying to invite, invite Hillary to come on to it too, but very wisely she did not. That would have been a disaster for her to go up there and to to suggest that it's really a three-person race, uh, you know, because in that that splits that splits the opposition to Trump. That's how Trump really made it into power was all those people having split all the rest of the votes. You know, you saw over and over again that, that Trump was not getting the majority uh, of the votes in the Republican uh, primaries, but he was getting like 33, 35 percent, and the other guys were getting 20 percent, 23 percent. So they were saying he wins, you know, that whole thing. 
So that uh, that was very wise of her not to engage in that. Uh, but and, and she won't even debate uh, Bernie before any of the primaries. Again, she won't do it. She won't. She's refused to debate him in California uh, because she's basically doing one of those things of holding on uh, for the, the final quarter, you know, trying to just hold on to the ball and see if she can run the clock out of here. And uh, uh, Bernie is digging in, trying to think of everything he can think of. Uh, but this unorthodox uh, debate uh, between Bernie and, and Trump is going to be really quite interesting. Uh, and I think, I think if, if Bernie gets properly coached so that he doesn't just keep on saying over and over and over again the $27 and the, you know, all that stuff, he just keeps going kind of robotically saying that stuff over and over again. He's got to be much more adroit and he's got to make some kind of a major tactical decision as to whether he's going to take Trump on, you know, head on on, uh, on his style of fist fighting and kind of mud throwing and stuff like that. Uh, as you saw, that, that that didn't work at all for Rubio. Uh, that was the end of Rubio's campaign when he got into comparing hand size and stuff with, uh, <laughs> with uh, you, can, you, can't, you, can't, you can't take Trump on uh, in that way, you know, because it's just, it's just like the, the progressive community trying to take up guns against the fascists. You know, they've got more guns, bigger guns, they know how to use the guns, you know, our people don't know how to get the safety turned off. Uh, you know, so that doesn't that doesn't work. So the, he's got to be careful about that. So, but, but we'll see. But as I say, it is still a huge uh, uphill climb uh, for Bernie, and I think that he's going to have to have some kind of effective uh, assault on the legitimacy of the voting system. Uh, in the primaries uh, of these votes because, as they say, they've, they've tabulated the total number of votes that they believe have been miscounted and that there's a full million of them. Uh, and so that it could actually reduce her total popular votes by a million, increase his popular votes by a million, so that her assertion she has two million more votes than he would go away. And it would be basically a tie uh, and, but it, that doesn't, it doesn't tell you how it would distribute the delegates because just the popular vote purely doesn't control the delegates. But you know Bernie and his people, they would then attack that and say it's the popular vote that really counts. That whatever the kind of manipulation was of how many delegates you get in any given state shouldn't be undertaken either. So, uh, so we'll see. We'll see here that the time is, the time is fast approaching. Uh, we have uh, two more uh, two more classes uh, to do, uh, but but I wanted I just wanted to get you brought up to the period in which is like your history now, you know, getting you brought up to that whole Iran Contra scandal uh, that is one that is the closest of all of the things that we have talked about that kind of impinges directly on your experience. You know, that I think you've heard more about it, uh, at least it seems more recent to you than any of the other kind of scandals, the stuff that we've been talking about down through the years, uh, other than the one that's going on now, uh, which we opened with. So, uh, so that's, that's where, that's where we, we brought us out of it. What I, I want to do uh, in, the, in the two classes that we have uh, next week, I want to uh, address the 
the reality that, that the way things are, or the way things were when the Reagan-Bush administration came into power, uh, I'll, I'll do a little closing on how it is that, uh, that George H.W. Bush got defeated, uh, that uh, when Ross Perot ran against him, I'll tell you all those kind of interesting stories of flying around with Ross Perot and little Learjet and uh, having, having him end up deciding he was going to run against, uh, against Bush uh, to stop him in 1992 from getting a second term. Uh, and then that, therefore, bringing Bill Clinton into, into office. And that'll bring, now, what, let's see, how, what, what year were you guys born in? I haven't done your computation. What year were you born? 1986. 1986. Oh, 96. Oh, where's that? Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, when were you born? Yeah. 96. Okay. Oh, gee. So I gotta, I gotta get us brought up to 96 uh, before it kind of digs right into your, uh, and not that you're going to remember things when you're one or two years old, but at least I can get them up into there. Uh, 96 would actually bring you on up to, uh, on up to the Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, being in the presidency before, before the uh, his yeah, okay okay we'll we'll do a little of that uh, we'll do a little of that when we when we go on Tuesday I just want to get it brought up to your time but then what I want to do in the in the last uh, class uh, so I want to point out some of the way this was at the very beginning of the country to really understand that this element in our ruling elite uh, has been with us ever since the beginning. So that you should not, number one, you should not despair over the fact that they're still healthy and, and sort of at it still. Uh, but, uh, but on the other hand, we have to start to try to come to grips with uh, what your feelings are about this type of muscled up uh, aspect of the American character, you know, this kind of, you know, uh, tough, strident group that, uh, you know, asserts its power around the world. Do you think that it is always bad? Uh, have there been any positive uh, repercussions from this? Uh, what do you think about uh, the type of lifestyle that it has generated for at least some significant portion of people that live inside the United States? Uh, so we're, we're going to get to some of those questions in the last class and a half. But I want to, I want us to uh, uh, get ready. Now just uh, let's deal with some questions that you've got about things that we've covered already here uh, before we go on over. Because uh, I, I want to get a reporter so we can sit. I can sit down with each of you to kind of hone in on your uh, your thesis topics. But yes, and thinking about how Reagan was basically propped up by the CIA establishment, yeah. like, do you think that Trump actually has any independence, or is he, do you think at the end of the day he's just going to bow down to the powers that he already Well, that actually we can see something like that happening right now. You can see him starting to uh, play a role. Uh, you know, he obviously played a role earlier, which was playing himself. You know, of this kind of bombastic character. He's, he's a caricature of himself, uh, and now he is basically you know drawing in his horns and drawing in his claws and and uh, trying to indicate that he's more presidential 
uh, and that he's trying to, you know, uh, make good with the establishment. He's raising money for them. He's relinquished that strident position he's had that anybody who takes money uh, through the Republican or Democratic Party uh, or their PACs, you know, is inherently compromised. You, you, you see the answer to that very question you got manifesting right in front of you. And so we'll see, for example, in the debate uh, with, with, uh, with Bernie, whether Bernie can get him to uh, relapse uh, into that kind of frantic, I mean, but look at it yesterday. I mean, it's just hard to imagine, you know, when, when the uh, Inspector General of the State Department comes out with their report uh, saying that Hillary Clinton, you know, violated the rules in having her private server uh, but the fact is, so did, you know, Powell and other secretaries of state. It wasn't very clear what the rules all were. Nobody enforced them. But, you know, it, Trump, Trump's response is, well, you heard that uh, uh, old uh, crooked Clinton, uh, crooked, crooked Clinton, she had a very bad day. Bad. Very bad. <laughs> what the fuck kind of analysis is that? <laughs> <laughs> the United States. You know, I mean, that's, that's his analysis of uh, you know, not even, he could have been throttling her with the report from the IG, but he's, that's the best he can do. You're going, what is this? You know, so it's going to be, it's, he, doesn't, he doesn't do very well uh, at playing nice, you know, or trying to understate his position on things. So he's just, he's, uh, you know, he's probably going to come unwound uh, during this process. He's going to revert to his old style. Uh, and, and I've said a number of times, if Hillary is smart enough to pick Elizabeth Warren to be her vice presidential candidate with her, you know, he will come completely unglued, you know, and, and he's going to go crazy and his total misogynist self is going to rise to the surface uh, and, uh, and we're going to have a heyday. But, uh, but the, the national news media are quite dedicated, the corporate media are quite dedicated to trying to generate the impression that this is going to be a nip and tuck horse race all the way down the line, uh, you know, because they love seven game series, you know, in the finals of the basketball and baseball, and they love they love close games in the Super Bowl. You know, who wants to see a you know a 35 to nothing wipeout in the Super Bowl? You know, they they want to have an audience following this thing, and so they're weighing in right now, trying to give the impression that this is going to be a nip and tuck horse race down the line. Uh, and the, and the, it's, it's, and, and so far, I must say, I don't, I don't see Hillary uh, having quite figured out how to handle this yet. Uh, I don't think she, she doesn't, she doesn't come off uh, very effectively as a tough guy. You know, when she adopts that kind of tough guy attitude, and, I mean, people just go, Ugh, you know, this is this is really not very uh, not very appealing, not very persuasive, uh, and, and yet if she doesn't, you know, act strong and stuff, he's going to try to mop the floor with her, so that we, we don't know exactly how this thing is going to go, but we'll get some sense of how Bernie uh, is going to be able to go toe to toe. We'll we'll see if this uh, with this debate, uh, but but I. I, I, and, and I say that the, the unfortunate fact remains is that Hillary's not going to be able to succeed in talking Bernie into being her vice president. He will not do it. 
you know, he will not agree to run in the campaign with major PAC funding and stuff that the Democratic ticket is going to be dependent upon. He won't do it. Whereas Trump, despite all of his uh, bloviating uh, about, uh, you know, not being dependent upon any external funding, has just rolled right over and gone right ahead and decided to, you know, get funds from the Republican Party. And the media are just going, oh, did you notice? That he's now taking funds from the party, and everybody goes, "Yeah, right." Next, you know, so that, so that this depends on us, and I hope I hope that, that our people are not dependent upon the kind of weird display that went on in Nevada, you know, with the, with the crowd of kids that all came out and were jumping up and down and ranting, you know, in front of the auditorium where where uh, Trump was speaking, you know, and they were. <laughs> You know, giving the finger to all the cameras, and they had CNN cameras there, and they had uh, the MSNBC cameras there, and they were all, all carrying fuck Trump signs around, and putting them up in front of the cameras and stuff like that. You know, and, uh, and, and taking their shirts off and jumping up and down and, and wrestling with each other. I mean, that's not going to work. You know, that that kind of silly stuff is not going to work. So, uh, so the, our our whole country is going to be going through a very uh, important uh, test here in the next uh, several weeks. So I want, I want us all to uh, uh, be able to explain to everybody what they ought to be doing. So we'll figure that out in the next couple of classes. Okay.